You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 63. This episode, presented by Brother Jim Dillingham from the Cranston Ecclesia in the USA, is entitled, The Principle of Judgment, Doubtful Disputations. Judging others is both inappropriate and necessary, depending on the issue. Matters of doubtful disputation are not appropriate for judging others, as we can be responsible for the sins of others. Making peace does not suggest tolerating greater and greater diversity. Peace is about harmony, which is a presence and not an absence. We are currently considering the divine principle of judgment. In our previous considerations, we began to address the issue of how motivation can serve as both an accelerant or a decelerant in relation to gauging the offense against God with a particular sin. We started to consider this in the context of how a certain behavior can qualify as a sin for one person, yet not qualify as a sin for another person. This was the issue of eating meat that had been dedicated to a pagan idol. We considered Paul's comments and how literally there's no significance whatsoever whether the enlightened community was eating or refusing to eat meats that had been dedicated to pagan idols. Unless, of course, one thought there was some significance and some possibility of offending God. After all, the entire 1,500 years or so during the First Kingdom Age, there was a long list of forbidden foods that would significantly offend God if consumed. But that was no longer the case. Because, of course, we know that God teaches us the same principles in different ways during the maturing development of the bride of his son. Jesus had purged all meats during his ministry, declaring that nothing that goes into a person can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what have, has the capacity to defile them. But Paul noted that we can be responsible for the sins that others commit if we prompt their failure, such as arrogantly and obviously partaking of meat that had been dedicated to a pagan idol in the very presence of a brother with weak faith or one with limited spiritual knowledge. Motivation is an issue that can impose the guilt of sin in one environment that will not be the case in a slightly different environment. This understanding eliminates the possibility that offending God is just a simple and easily understood set of technicalities. <laughs> Therefore, we need to be aware of this precedent in the context of our own understandings and behavior in our pursuit of demonstrating God's righteousness in our own lives. Our motivations can have consequences. 
This is why Paul began his considerations of that issue of meat offered to idols by stressing the need for the combination of knowledge and love. Knowledge alone will puff up, encourage arrogance. That knowledge has to be partnered with love. And part of the, that equation is recognizing that we are responsible for each other. That was the new commandment, which Jesus defined as his own personal commandment that he issued at that last Passover on the night before he died, that we are supposed to love each other, to love the brotherhood more than we love ourselves. So let's progress to that reasoning Paul presents to the Romans in chapter 14, addressing this same issue of eating meats offered to idols. I'm not usually a verse-by-verse -verse commentator. I, I think that's all too easy to be consumed by the tree or even the bark on the tree and to be blinded to the forest with a verse-by-verse -verse commentary. In other words, tripping over the stumbling block of oversimplification and becoming imbalanced in our spiritual understandings. I, I prefer theme subjects, but this verse-by-verse -verse consideration of 1 Corinthians 8 and now Romans 14 is warranted due to the concentration of focus on our target subject and the issues that Paul presents as being related all within the framework of understanding the principle of judgment according to the terms of our Creator's eternal righteousness. So let's start on Romans 14 where Paul writes, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another, who is weak, eats herbs or vegetables. One cannot legislate faith. We can encourage faithfulness by example, by advising, by education, spiritual education, but we cannot legislate faithfulness. There are variable issues in our own service to God. Well, we can and should advise, we cannot force. We noted last week how there have been some of these variable issues <clears throat> that have been stressed and debated in our community over my three generations in the truth, uh, including the mandated exclusive use of the King James Version of, of the Bible in our ecclesial activities, as well as always using that 17th century English King James, uh, those King James expressions in our prayers of, of thee and thou and adding the E-T-H or the E-S-T to words like, like eateth and shouldest and savest. Another was always, without exception, reading the Hebrew names and titles of God from Scripture as opposed to the transliterations of God and Lord. Another has been a standard of attire, including ties and jackets for brethren. And now that would not include the sisters' head coverings, as that does not qualify as a doubtful disputation. That issue is definitively addressed all through the Bible. But what we wear to memorial service, study weekends, and Bible classes is one of those areas of personal interpretation. Another would be observing common paganized Christian holidays, such as Easter and Christmas. 
while there is scriptural precedence for most of these issues, not all, they fit into that meat offered to idols framework of doubtful disputations, of variable personal expressions of an individual's faithfulness. The problem with doubtful disputations is that they can escalate into contradictions of God's righteousness. Uh, this was the case with the Pharisees and the scribes who manufactured new offenses against God, such as not washing one's hands before eating, imposing a religious factor in washing dishes, or the Sanhedrin's law of Korban that contradicted the command to honor one's father and mother. They so misunderstood the purpose of Sabbath observance that they conspired how to destroy the Son of God for repeatedly healing on the Sabbath. We don't have the right to legislate what we may personally measure as faithfulness. And that doesn't mean we should not address these issues when appropriate with spiritual education, as they should be spiritually educating, as we should be spiritually educating and encouraging each other to greater faith and greater spiritual knowledge. We should be helping those without knowledge and those with little faith in our enlightened community. It is those who directly oppose the principles of God's righteousness, not those doubtful disputations. These brothers and sisters, we can and should more energetically oppose, as Jesus did, as well as Paul and Peter and Jude. Jesus regularly and directly insulted false teachers within the enlightened community during his ministry. And even after he ascended to heaven, I mean, we can just read the seven letters to the Ecclesias in Revelation 3 and 4 and, and see that severe and open rebuke uh, against false teachers and, uh, and those who poorly demonstrate God's righteousness or contradict God's righteousness within the Ecclesia. So again, there, there has to be a balance. We do have a variety of judgments that we have to make, such as when to support a brother and sister that's weak in faith that knowledge, and when to oppose the brother or sister truly promoting ungodliness within the body of Christ. I, I do get a little chuckle when I read that last statement of Paul about realizing they can eat anything, but the weak are vegetarians. <laughs> I realize that's not the same as the motivation today to become a vegetarian. Uh, then it was about a spiritually inspired abstinence. Today it's about either health or refusing to eat the flesh of a formerly living creature. There is a, a pseudo-spiritual aspect to that second motivation, which suggests that we don't, we don't have the moral right to kill and eat animals, that this is somehow unrighteous. Now, that's a completely illegitimate understanding from a spiritual perspective. God himself gave man the right to kill and eat animals after Noah and his family exited the ark. Additionally, God demanded killing certain animals for sacrifice and permitted the priests to eat parts of those animal sacrifices as well as that harmony offering, that love offering, which was the, the peace offering, that altar offering category where all three parties fellowshiped together in that same meal. God received his portion on the altar. 
The officiating priest was given part of that meat to eat, share with his family, and the offering party was allowed to eat that same sacrificial meat offering, at least for a day or two, depending on the peace offering category. Um, Personally, I am a dedicated carnivore, but I certainly respect others who limit themselves to agricultural food sources, but I do object to anyone suggesting that eating meat is somehow wrong on a moral or spiritual level. Paul also expresses this acceptability, this legitimacy of an exclusively vegetarian diet in order to avoid eating meats offered to idols. Let's continue reading in Romans 14. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not, and let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. Who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or fails, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand to make him stand. Admittedly, the issue Paul is stressing is sincerity, not laziness. Paul is presuming that this vegetarian diet is being prompted by a sincere intention of not offending God by partaking of meat that had been dedicated to a pagan idol. God, uh, I'm sorry, Paul points out this is not a legitimate concern, but that doesn't offer anyone the opportunity to disrespect that weak brother or sister who is sincerely trying to avoid offending God. This is the issue of motivation and how it can modify the application of judgment in a matter. It is the matters of doubtful disputation that we are not free to judge our brothers and sisters. But that does not extend that judgment ban to all situations as we are commanded to make judgments within our brotherhood for issues that do not qualify as doubtful disputations. This is more and more frequently the oversimplification path being promoted in our community, that all judgments are illegitimate, simply because some judgment applications are illegitimate, and that qualifies as corrupting God's righteousness. Let's read some more from Paul's reasoning. He says, one man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every one be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day, regard it unto the Lord. He that regards not the day, to the Lord he does not regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he that eats not to the Lord, he eats not and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Paul is emphasizing that sincerity issue in relation to doubtful disputations. Now, he expands the issue of respect to respecting days. And that seems, seems logical that this would refer to Sabbath observance, but might be extended to many different categories of days, even to those paganized Christian days 
that supposedly honor God, especially since we have this context of eating meat that had been offered to pagan idols. Paul never declared that observing the Sabbath was wrong, just that demanding everyone had to observe the Sabbath was wrong, that somehow Sabbath observance was dependent on salvation. It was the same with circumcision. Paul did not declare circumcision to be wrong, as that would be a contradiction to God's righteousness. He simply insisted that demanding even the Gentiles had to be circumcised was wrong, suggesting that circumcision was an absolute requirement for salvation, which was the exact prompt for the Jerusalem council that Paul and Barnabas had attended. The point Paul makes is sincerity, motivation. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. If those Paul refers to as weak in faith or weak in knowledge, presume they are participating sincerely in their service to God in activities that are actually inconsequential, then we are advised to respect this and recognize that Jesus and God are the only ones capable of determining what is truly sincerity and what is laziness or the unwise pursuit of ungodliness. So let's continue with the Apostles' progressive reasoning. It says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set it not your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. This issue of not judging and not putting your brother at naught has to be constrained by the context, as this does not say, do not ever, under any circumstances, judge your brother. That would, that would contradict the right of Jesus to judge his brethren. Jesus certainly judged and also refrained from judging during his ministry. His scathing rebuke of the Pharisees and scribes on that Monday of the 12th of Nisan in the year 30 of the Common Era constituted a powerful judgment when he publicly declared those leaders of the enlightened covenant-bound community, declaring them, uh, those brethren in the family of God, just like ourselves, to be hypocrites, blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones, and a generation of vipers. Jesus asked, how are you Pharisees going to escape the damnation of Gehenna? Gehenna, of course, was that valley to the west and south of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, that was identified by God in, in Jeremiah oh, chapter 7, chapter 19, to be a place of divine judgment. Additionally, Paul legitimately put at naught certain brethren, such as Hymenaeus and Alexander. Fellowship was withdrawn in order to teach those brothers not to blaspheme. Paul recommended that the Corinthian ecclesia withdraw fellowship from the brother, brother living with his father's wife in order to save that brother and to save the ecclesia. So this specific statement by the Apostle Paul asking why, would, why one should judge their brother is certainly limited to this application 
of eating meat offered to idols and two other doubtful disputations, and not too significant and unrepentant, very clear contradictions to God's righteousness. But there's another very valuable piece of information presented here, and we began to address this last week as well. This is the statement in verse 12 that every one of us will have to give account of himself to God. Last week, we noted Paul's statement that ecclesial leaders will have to give account for their stewardship and care for the brotherhood. This giving account is for all who are required to attend the judgment of the Son of God. Our judgment before Christ, or the angels assigned by him to judge us, will require us to give an account of ourselves. Our judgment, which will result in either eternal life or eternal death, will demand our own personal testimony and responses. We will have to give account of ourselves. The judgment will not be some quick process of simply pointing out the few who will be offered eternal life and the, and the many who will be consigned to eternal death. There will be an accounting for each of us individually. There will be questioning. Jesus commented on this issue during his ministry when some declared that his power to heal is sourced from the pagan god Beelzebub because Jesus was healing on Sabbath days. This is the same context where Jesus warned everyone about the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We read in Romans 12, <clears throat> where Jesus says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. We're warned by our judge, that we will have to give account in the day of judgment and that our words will either justify us or condemn us. Therefore, we should be very careful about every word that comes out of our mouths and we should be planning what we're going to say to our judge. We're going to be questioned at our forever life or forever death judgment. Now, one might ask why this exchange is going to be necessary. God already knows who's going to live forever, who's going to die forever. We've addressed this issue before when we considered the basis for determining who will be resurrected back to mortality to be judged and who will not. There are a large number of people that will be raised only to die forever, but not until they are made to understand how they contradicted the righteousness of God. The foundational purpose of the judgment is the vindication of the righteousness of God. The determination of salvation or perishing is the consequence of that vindication process that will demand an accounting. Therefore, we had better be prepared to respond to those pointed questions about why we said certain things. What was our motivation? Why we did certain things and why we did not do certain things. There will be no patience for those who insisted, well, they, they never said that or never did the things that they're going to be required to explain. Let's continue reading Paul's comments about on this issue of judging 
in reference to eating meats dedicated to idols and other doubtful disputations. He writes, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. So don't judge, but do judge. <laughs> but judge this, Matt, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fail in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Again, this issue of judging has to be constrained to the context due to the principle of God manifestation, multitudinous singularity that all things have to harmonize perfectly together. Putting this in the, uh, in the phrasing of Solomon, there's a time to judge, and there's a time to refrain from judging. Or as he puts it in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to keep silence, and there's a time to speak. But let's consider this issue of putting a stumbling block, or an occasion to fail, in the path of a brother. There certainly has to be a balance. We have to have standards. We are commanded to pursue God's righteousness, to demonstrate it in our lives, to promote it, defend it. This issue of putting unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of others within the enlightened community is the context of these doubtful disputations. Jesus certainly insisted on higher standards. His Sermon on the Mount greatly intensified the difficulties of serving God correctly compared to the standards of the laws of that first kingdom of God. It would be inappropriate to suggest Jesus was putting stumbling blocks in the path of the children of God by demanding higher standards of behavior. But Jesus also condemned those within the enlightened community who demanded compliance with manufactured standards, such as the washing of hands and the washing of dishware, for religious reasons and the imbalanced significance of swearing by the gold of the temple as opposed to the temple itself, and the law of Corban that contradicted the fifth of the Ten Commandments to honor our father and mother. <clears throat> there were also the very significant mistakes related to correctly observing the Sabbath, how some would take pity on their animal fallen into a pit, rescuing that animal from the pit on a Sabbath day, but had no pity on one who could be healed from a horrible condition, like a withered hand, or being blind from birth, or being crippled for 38 years, to be relieved of their burden, to experience a rest from the physical effects of sin on a Sabbath day of rest. We can be guilty of manufacturing new possibilities to fail, guilty of putting unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. But we can also be guilty of denying the standards of God in Christ, of denying the rightness of God in relation to the things that we teach, or denying the rightness of God in the behavioral standards that we insist upon. We have to balance. We have a balance to pursue. We need to be right as God is always right, and we want to be like our God in every way, and he is always right. This won't be simple, it won't be easy, 
and we'll be told to explain why we said and did things at our judgment. We will have to give account. So we have to be ready and we have to be very careful in the standards of God-likeness that we establish for ourselves and for our brother, brotherhood. There are judgments, determinations of what is right and what is not right, what has to be done, which should never be done, and what can be actually what can actually be right for some, but wrong for others. The next issue to note is in verse 14, where he says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Therefore, an issue that's not really a challenge to possibly contradicting God's righteousness becomes a challenge on the basis of just thinking that it's actually a challenge. Uncertainty can activate the conscience as well as a sense of guilt that no technicalities can dismiss. We can make recommendations about those doubtful disputations, but should not insist that they are a condition for salvation, as the Jews were doing concerning circumcision and eating meats offered to idols. Therefore, we need to be very confident in what we understand to be right and to be wrong, according to our Creator's standards. And we also have to be sensitive to the understandings of the weak in faith and the poor in knowledge. And admittedly, that is a lot to think about. But let's put that in the context of what's available to us. Due to our responding positively, to God's universal call to enlightenment and responding to his second call to commitment after enlightenment, we, had a, we have an invitation to inherit the restored kingdom of God, to be born again into the eternal spirit nature of God, to escape the endless corruption, that principle of decay that burdens our sin-cursed nature, the elimination of all tears, to experience an, an unimaginable joy and to live forever. Our current responsibility is to perform. Since we've accepted enlightenment, committed ourselves to the terms of that enlightenment, but that performance of God's righteousness can be very challenging. As we've noted in John's first letter many times, all unrighteousness does qualify as sin. So if we aren't demonstrating God's righteousness in our words and in our deeds, then what we do qualifies as sin, from which we have to repent if there is going to be any forgiveness. This highlights another aspect of judgment that we'll have to address, but not yet. This is the terms of our own judgment by Christ to determine whether we will live forever or die forever. One of the issues by which we will be judged will be how we have actively demonstrated God's righteousness in our lives, or not. Sin forgiveness is certainly not the only consideration in our judgment. Righteousness performance is another judgment consideration. But we'll get to that 
So let's let's finish this, or let's try to finish this Romans 14 chapter, and include uh, the first two verses of chapter 15 as well. So Paul writes, but if if your brother be grieved with your meat, now walkest thou not charitably or lovingly. Destroy not him with your meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Have you faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in the thing which he allows. And he that doubts is damned if he eat, because he eats not of faith. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Let's just continue the first few verses of chapter 15 as well, where the, the, the reasoning is, is concluded. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as has written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. There are situations where we can be responsible for the failures of others. Not, not just the elders and teachers, but literally all of us. We're exhorted by Paul to follow after the things that encourage peace. But this too is a challenge. Because God's definition of peace is exactly the opposite of society's understanding of what constitutes peace. We have reviewed this issue in these, this series previously. If we consider peace merely to be the absence of conflict and the absence of violence, then we are encouraged to tolerate greater and greater diversity in the pursuit of that absence of disturbance. This is the heart's definition, and exactly the opposite of God's definition of peace that we're supposed to pursue. Peace is a capsulation of that ultimate principle of God manifestation, of multitudinous singularity. Peace is the presence of harmony, which has to include the elimination of all that is diverse not its toleration. When we hear Jesus say at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. This does not refer to those who promote lower and lower spiritual standards of behavior and truth in order to encourage that absence of conflict, false understanding of what constitutes peace. Promoting ungodliness, and disrespect to God's righteousness shifts that harmony away from God and exclusively with ourselves. That is the path of divine rejection and eternal death. The peace we should be promoting 
is harmony with God, which hopefully would include harmony with each other. But our goal should be greater godliness, not tolerating less and less godliness. Christadelphians cannot save us. God in Christ can save us. Our peace, our harmony must be directed to them, not away from them in order to accommodate our community's corrupted and self-worshipping definition of what constitutes peace in societies, but unfortunately being adopted more and more within our enlightened community. This is the conflict that our community has faced during my 50 plus years in the truth. This is the extremely popular but highly inappropriate pursuit of unity within our brotherhood at the expense of pursuing harmony with God. We're exhorted to accommodate greater and greater contradictions to God's righteousness in both understandings and behavior. This disrespect to God and Christ is presented as actually pursuing love and peace. But the focus shifted from the love of God to the love of people, shifted away from harmony with God to the toleration of diversity with people, as if this is what God actually wants. The same mistake, mistake is being made of oversimplification, of exclusivity as opposed to inclusiveness in order to serve that only other God in this world other than our creator, which is the human heart, that face in the mirror, we have to balance all the testimony of God to understand the terms of our creator's righteousness. In our considerations of what constitutes peace, we, we quoted creation, that second witness of God. We noted how the positive components of creation, that which actually exists, they're always a presence, while their negative counterparts are always simply an absence, such as light and darkness, heat and cold, life and death. We also noted the incredible lesson of synergy in the context of physics and chemistry and metallurgy and even culinary, culinary applications. When the right elements in the right amounts are blended together in the right way, the whole becomes far greater than the sum of the parts. Creation's testimony about the seemingly magical process of synergy testifies concerning the divine principle of harmony, that multitudinous singularity, that peace, that God manifestation. It will take the complete elimination of death in that eighth day, that eighth millennium, to facilitate that perfect peace, as death is God's answer for sin. The elimination of that last enemy, death, will result in God being all in all. And the blending of all this is in heaven and all that is on earth. That is peace. Therefore, we need to hear the apostles' advice to follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Encouraging harmony. 
not tolerating diversity to maintain a unity which is not the same as harmony. Let's consider that last thought in chapter 14. How happy is he that condemns not himself in the thing which he allows, and he that doubts is damned if he eat, because he eats not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Confidence in what is right is a path to happiness. Doubting is what creates the problem and the possible offense to God. Therefore, it's quite obvious to pursue the wisdom of developing that necessary confidence, pursuing that balanced and comprehensive and inclusive understanding of what constitutes the rightness of God and what does not. Exactly what we're trying to do with this class series. That last statement fits within the same framework of creation's testimony of peace and God's ultimate definition of sin being the absence of righteousness. Paul is, is inspired to tell us whatever is not of faith qualifies as sin. That's quite a powerful statement. This goes right back to how creation itself uh, testifies uh, concerning the spiritual definition of peace. Peace should be understood as a presence, not an absence, as in the absence of, of, of conflict or the absence of disturbance. That's a goal of unity, mere unity, a flesh goal. Sin is the absence of righteousness. Sin is the absence of faith. We have to develop that presence of righteousness in our lives. We have to develop that presence of faith in our lives. Merely concentrating on being forgiven for our sins is completely insufficient for salvation. We can't be saved on the basis of an absence. We need that presence. What is real? Like truth, righteousness, faith. And like light and warmth and life, as opposed to those absences of darkness and cold and death and sin. In the end, there will be only there will only be the presence of God's righteousness. There will be a complete absence of sin due to the elimination of death. So we're going to have to finish up our considerations of Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 in our class next week. But we'll also consider that balancing issue of being required to judge in certain situations that do not qualify as doubtful disputations. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over 
and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.